Welcome to Capital City Church Online. We're preaching through the book of Galatians. Uh, and tonight we're going to cover Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Uh, we're going to read these nine verses and the first nine verses of Galatians 5 together. Reading out of the English Standard Version, it says, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Most of you have been on at least part of this journey with us. Uh, Galatians is a fascinating book. It's written not to one church, but to a, a group of churches in a region. There was no city of Galatia. It was a region um, uh, in southern Pisidia. It was written probably in the late uh, 40s. And so you may not know a lot about Scripture. You may not know a lot about the Bible or about biblical times. But I just want you to try to imagine with me what this must have been like. Uh, this is less than two decades after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, which is the event, like for us as Christians, as believers, that's the event that everything hangs on. And we look at it now and we think to ourselves, well, you know, Christianity is around the world. And, you know, there, these 12 disciples, or at least 11 of them, you know, we have churches named after them and we have, you know, it, it's a movement. It's a worldwide movement. But that's 2,000 years later. 20 years after, it was still fledgling. And there were, you know, several thousand believers, but in the grand context, this was still a new idea. Christianity really was settling an imported issue. And the issue was, how do you get in? <laughs> How do you get into Christianity? How, how do you become a Christian? What does that look like? And Christianity in, in many ways, especially from the outside looking in, it, it kind of grew out of Judaism. And so there had to be kind of a clean break and, and that it's separate. It's not a subset of Judaism. This is something totally different. What does it take to belong? which is a really powerful question. What does it take to belong? What does it take to be accepted by this community? And if you zoom out, um, it's not just about being accepted by the community of Christians, but the community of Christians is a group of people who have been accepted by God. So really the biggest question is, what does it take to be accepted by God and to join with and to become a part of this community? Well, the problem is, in order to be accepted by God on your own merit, you can't just be good. You have to be better than good. You have to be perfect because God's perfect. And then along comes Jesus. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, but then he died for sin anyway. He didn't die for his own sin because he didn't have any. He died, in fact, for our sins. This is what we believe as Christians, and it's really a powerful idea 
that we sometimes take for granted that Jesus died not for his sins, but for ours. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Time out. He made Jesus to be sin. The sinless one was made to be sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you just wrap your mind around this idea? The God of the universe sent his son who lived a sinless life and then became sin, not just to pay for your sins, but this is so powerful, so that we could exchange our sin for his righteousness. See, through the sacrifice of Jesus, you weren't just brought back to even. You were actually made righteous. You're not, you weren't just made innocent. It's far beyond that. You were made righteous. You were given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our sin was transferred to him. His righteousness in turn is transferred to us. And how we live in this concept, this idea, and how we apply this idea matters greatly. In fact, it is how we define our faith. So again, we kind of jump in the middle of a story because we've been examining this for several weeks now. Uh, and we're in chapter five of this book. Um, but in between kind of these really big theological concepts, uh, these theological thoughts, Paul blasts this anthem, this one sentence, this, this verse one of, of Galatians five. It's this big idea. It's almost like Paul puts this billboard up on the highway and says, I just want you to catch this. This is such a huge thing. In fact, in the original, if you go back and, and look in the original language, it's actually a lone sentence by itself. You've got paragraphs in there, but there's this one sentence, this one idea. He wants to connect the preceding idea to the idea that's about to show up. And this is what he writes. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now that is simultaneously um, pretty simple, obvious, but also really profound. God sets you free because he intends for you to live in freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. If you're going to live in freedom, you're going to need to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. God's purpose in sending Jesus was to set us free from slavery to the law. And I love this idea of the yoke, right? We hear about yoke and we think that that's bondage. Well, actually, uh, it's really possible that Paul was doing wordplay here. Um, it was an honorable idea in Jewish culture uh, to, keep, to keep the obligation of the law of Moses, that this was a yoke that people would gladly accept. And it's very possible and, and just by way of review, Paul goes through this region, he plants churches, he goes back to Antioch where he's from, and then there's what we call Judaizers. It's these false teachers who come in behind him and they start to sow false teaching and they're sowing discord and they're saying, you know, Paul wasn't exactly right. He left some things out. Let us tell you what this is really all about. And so it's possible that they brought back in this idea of the yoke. Yes, you're Christians. Yes, you believe in Christ uh, and you trust Christ for your salvation, but you still have to have that yoke, that yoke of keeping the law. And it's an honorable thing. So can you imagine what the wordplay must have been for these folks to read this from Paul and hear, don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He takes this idea of a yoke and he turns it on its head. And we see really 
two themes that are going to run through the next few verses. There's what I call a theological indicative. What that means is that something's true. An indicative is just stating a fact. This, is the, this, is, this indicates a state of events that's currently true. But then we also have flowing out of it what I call an ethical imperative. There's theological indicative. That there's something that's true, but the ethical imperative that comes out of that is there are some ways that we should respond to this being true. There are some things that we should work out because this is true. So Paul's in the next three verses, verses two, three, and four, Paul's going to uh, make three connected statements, and he's really just kind of restating the same idea in three different ways. If you look with me in verse two, he says, look, I, Paul, probably, time out, really interesting, probably a refutation of false reports uh, that Paul supported the teaching of the Judaizers. It's very possible that that's what Paul was doing here, was saying, you may have heard that I support that idea, this yoke of keeping the law. Look, I, Paul, it's, he emphasizes it, say to you that if you accept circumcision, specifically on the basis of believing that it makes you righteousness, makes you righteous, or it's how you keep your righteousness, Christ will be of no advantage to you. There is an irreconcilable separation between circumcision and Christ as two different, entirely different modes of receiving righteousness or of being made righteous, uh, of receiving advantage, of receiving profit, of receiving benefit, which is this idea that you know, if you are circumcised because you believe it's going to put you in good favor with God or good standing with God, then you have missed the whole point. And you don't get to uh, appreciate the benefit, the advantage of having your faith in Christ as your only righteousness, the only righteousness that you need. Verse 3, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. See, he's restating this idea that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Okay, he restated, he restated the idea, but man, oh man, did he expand on it. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I read that verse every time, I think, whoa, <laughs> we got to stop a second. This is a huge idea that you, if, you, if you put your faith in that some kind of action is going to make God accept you or accept you more, you just signed a contract for the whole law. <laughs> You are now under obligation to keep the whole law. You are hitching yourself to the wagon of works. And that's not a good idea. It's really not a wise idea. He repeated this earlier in chapter 3. I don't know if you remember. He said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them or and keep them. He echoes this later when he writes Romans in Romans 2.25. He says, Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, you can't have it both ways. You can't get in by faith in Christ and believing that Christ is your righteousness and you're accepted by grace through faith, but then also believe that there's some benefit to works and that somehow it makes you more acceptable to God or it makes God more happy with you. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one part has become guilty of all of it. This is in your notes if you're following along. When your hope is in performance, you have committed yourself to perfection. That's deliberately worded, and I want you to listen to it. When your hope is in performance, you have committed yourself to perfection. And again, my 
automatic reaction is to go, wait a second. I, I, I don't want to commit myself to perfection because I can do pretty good. I have good days and I have good weeks and I have sometimes good months. But I'm not perfect. I don't know of anyone that is. Like, I'm pretty good, but I'm not perfect. See, you don't have to be a theologian to know that when you put your hope in your own perfection, that's a bad plan. You don't have to be a theologian. You just have to be alive and, like, conscious. You have to be aware of who you are and what's going on around you. As a pastor, a lot of times you'll ask someone, uh, how do you know you're going to heaven? And so often what you hear is people saying, well, I'm a pretty good person. Do you know what I've never heard in 20 plus years of ministry? I've never heard anyone say, because I'm perfect. <laughs> Who says that? No one, because we know it's not true. Perfection is the antithesis of grace. A hope of perfection is putting your hope in the law. And Paul's whole message here is, you're in trouble if that's what you're doing. So we go, verse 4, keep reading. He says, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. The imagery here is, is really spatial, if you will. It's this idea that we can stand in grace, that we can, that we can be present in grace. It's an idea that's echoed uh, in chapter 1 of Galatians. He talks about it in Romans 5. First uh, Peter 5 talks about this, this idea that we can stand in this realm of grace. And so he says, you know, if you go down that road of perfection, of works, of keeping the law, of circumcision, you've been severed from Christ. And yes, he did use that idea on purpose. He's, he's trying to use wordplay here and make a point. But the idea is you've gone down a road that doesn't lead to the destination that you're after. Jesus isn't found down that road. Righteousness isn't found down that road. It just, that's not how it works. You're in the wrong place. In your notes, it says, when your hope is in performance, you have lost the hope that is in Christ. Please hear me. I didn't say you've lost your salvation. That's not what Paul's saying here. What he is saying is, you've lost your hope. And my heart breaks when I think about the years that I've spent over 26 years of being a believer how much time I've spent, and I don't even realize it, drifting back into performance and works. And I didn't lose my salvation, but I lost my hope and my peace and my joy because I start to believe that it all depends on me. And my heart breaks because I know that's true for all of us on some level. For all of us who are believers, there's a tendency to go back into that, to drift back into that. You want to know why Christians can live joyless, hopeless existences? That's why. Because we think it's up to us. We need to be good enough. We need to be smart enough. We need to be spiritual enough. Hmm. In Paul's mind, justification is either all of grace by faith through Jesus Christ, or it's impossible. There's no middle road. We keep going. Verse 5, through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly wait for this hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness is the hope that righteousness brings to us. The hope that we know we, so big, we didn't earn righteousness. We were given it as a gift. And we've been justified. We've been declared as, as innocent and as good and as perfect, not because of anything we've done. And the hope that this justification points us toward. This is the hope of righteousness. And also notice 
It didn't happen through the flesh by the law. It happened through the Spirit by faith. In other words, if our justification comes from faith, then our hope has to come from the same place. It's faith. It's not action. It's not works. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It doesn't benefit you in any way, but only faith working through love. There's your indicative and your imperative. Faith is the indicative, and it's working itself through love, which is the imperative, which means this is the outflowing of our faith. Faith operates through love because justifying faith receives the Spirit of God and that he is the principal and the producer of this new life of love that you and I lead. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? When I hear that, I think distractions. How many distractions are around us? How many distractions are around us right now with the upheaval and the turmoil and the chaos that we see in our culture? We've been through a lot over the last six months, eight months, and we're tired. But we need to be careful that we don't become distracted by what's going on around us. Because if we're not careful, it will hinder us from obeying the truth and from living that imperative of love out of the indicative of God's grace and faith. Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, God really wants to see you live in freedom. It's for freedom that Christ sets you free. God wants you to live a purposeful life. So if you're being distracted, that didn't come from him. He didn't cause that. And he really wants you to try to figure out how to navigate the distortion and the distraction that's around you, that's in our culture. And then verse 9, the concept that I think most of us are familiar with, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. If you've ever been involved in bakery, um, baking, my, my first job, I worked in a bakery. And it's so, it was so interesting that, you know, they're, they're making, it was like in a supermarket. So they're making these huge quantities of bread and of cakes. And, but they don't, you know, we, we would unload 50 pound bags of flour and of sugar. That was kind of, I mean, I was 16 years old. So that was, my job was to carry heavy things. Uh, but the, the, the uh, bag of yeast was always really small. You know, you've got these huge 50-pound bags of the other ingredients and then the little thing of yeast. Because it doesn't take much. A few pinches will do an awful lot. This leaven, please hear me, please hear me, please look at me right now. That's what false teaching does to us. It doesn't take much to send us off in the wrong direction. And it can be really bad, especially if we keep going, we don't course correct, we don't realize, we don't come back to the truth. You can wind up in some pretty sketchy places. It's the last thing in your notes. Believing that God's acceptance comes partially from performance is totally wrong. If you think that even partially God's acceptance comes from the way that you live your life or how obedient you are or are not, that's totally wrong. God accepts you on the basis of Jesus Christ. You have no righteousness of your own. And the sooner you realize that and confess it out loud, the better off we all are. But that really just sets the stage for you to accept the righteousness that Jesus has made available to us. That cataclysmic event 2,000 years ago on a hillside in the Middle East where Jesus died on a cross echoes 
into our lives and into our homes and into our hearts today. This is what Jesus did. This is the power of the cross that we can still be made righteous here today. See, gospel-centered Christianity is about living with God as the source of our hope. And that makes it a hope that can't be shaken. And so especially right now, when things are shaking all around us, it's more important than ever that our faith and our hope is coming from the right place. It's coming from a place that can't be taken from us and it can't be shaken from us. I heard somebody say recently, a really wise man uh, shared this earlier this week, and, and it just really stuck with me. This imagery, if you've ever been to the beach, and I mean like the ocean, okay, where there's a tide, where there are waves coming in. Um, I grew up in Florida, so we spent a lot of time at the beach, um, especially if there are strong waves. He said, if you think about the imagery of the beach and you're walking into these strong waves, as you're walking in, the first wave maybe hits at your waist and then splashes down. And, and it, waves can be powerful and it could almost knock you down. And you think, man, that's exhilarating. How fun is that? But you keep walking deeper and deeper. And maybe the next wave hits at your chest and then settles down. And, and you start to realize that this is exhilarating, but it's also kind of scary. But as you keep walking, the next one hits at your shoulders, right? And, and now you're not as exhilarated. You're just tired and you're scared. And maybe the fourth wave goes over your head and you just keep walking and eventually you're just trying to keep up. You're trying to keep your head above water. He said, that's what many of us have experienced over the last six to eight months. The first wave hit, which was for many of us, it was that initial shutdown back in late March or in April. And it was exhilarating maybe. Oh, we have to be creative. We have to figure out Zoom and all these other options. And then a few weeks later, racial tension was injected and justice and this idea of how do we seek justice and where do we find justice and how do we define it and what does it look like and what's my role in it came into the mix and that was another wave. And by itself, we may have found it exhilarating, something we need to lean into, uh, but many of us start to feel overwhelmed by that. And Maybe not even by what it's doing to you, but by what you see going on around you and what it's done in our culture and the arguments and the dis discord and tension and all of those things. And then we started to experience economic fallout as the, as the shutdown kind of drug on, right? Um, and that was another wave. Uh, there's been a health fallout for many of us, which is another wave. Uh, and then as we moved into the summer and the fall, we start to see you know, with the election coming, there's political divisiveness, and it's another wave. And again, by itself, we probably would have been okay, but these waves just keep coming, the waves keep coming, and now we're experiencing the wave of COVID numbers rising, and of it now forcing us to make decisions like, you're not sitting in church right now, you're watching online. Here's what I want to say to you. Jesus did not come to go to the cross so that you could live a finely polished, stress-free life. That's not why he came. He didn't come so that you could be perfectly obedient, although he wants you to be obedient and he wants you to have a great life. That's not why he came. He came, please hear this, so that you could have peace with God. I don't know if you have peace around you, but I know, and this is the most miraculous thing that's going to come out of my mouth, 
I know that it's possible in spite of your sin for you to have peace with God. And I know for many of you, you are already experiencing it. And maybe you've been a Christian for, for decades. You're experiencing it. What does it mean to have peace with God? That's something that once you have it, it cannot be taken away from you. You may live like it's not true, but it'll never be taken away from you, no matter what happens around you. That's why Jesus came to the cross, so that we could be at peace with God and flowing out of that, flowing out of that imputed righteousness, not earned righteousness, imputed, imparted to us, given to us. Flowing out of that, we could have hope and joy and pain in spite of the hope and joy, I'm sorry, in spite of the pain and suffering that we might see around us. That's why he came. So I want to close with these verses. John 16, verses 32 and 33. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and he's teaching the disciples. And the disciples didn't know exactly what was coming, although he had told them over and over, and he's about to tell them again. But they knew that this was a solemn moment. This was a solemn moment. They had celebrated the Last Supper in the upper room. Jesus had washed their feet. And now he says this to them. Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Can you imagine how that must have been a dagger to their hearts? That they had spent years of their lives following him. And he said, you're all about to fall away. You're all going to turn your backs on me. Listen to what he says. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I know that it's possible in this season that we find ourselves in to feel loneliness, to feel alone. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you're not alone. The Father's always with you. I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Please hear this. He didn't say so that in the world you can have peace. He didn't say so that in your circumstances you could have peace. He said so that in him you can have peace. I'm telling you right now that may be the only place that you find peace, but it's worth seeking it because you will find it there. And then the statement that you're probably familiar with, in the world you will have tribulation. That is a prediction. <laughs> Not that you might. You will have tribulation. But you can take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus' promise to us is that he's with us, his righteousness is ours, and we always have hope, not because of what's going on around us, but because what has already been done inside of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the righteousness that you provide, for the acceptance that you've given as a gift. We may not always live like it. That's part of our goal as Christians is to live like it. So empower us to do that with your spirit that's inside of us. If we've put our faith in Jesus and we've confessed our sins, trusted in you for our righteousness, then we have the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would empower us through your spirit. Help us to live lives of obedience, but we don't do it because we want you to love us more, to accept us more. We do it because we already are overwhelmed by how you perfectly love us and you perfectly accept us. As your children, you love us no matter what, and you've made it possible for us to be forgiven. So in light of what's going on around us, I pray that you would make that a reality in our souls and our hearts and in our minds in these days and weeks to come.
that we would always remember we've been given the most precious gift ever, and it is untouchable. We can't lose it. We can't spoil it. We can't mess it up. It came from your hand, and it's being kept by you on our behalf for all of eternity. Thank you for the cross, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.